In 2011, uh, Roger Scruton gave a series of lectures against atheism at Cambridge University. Scruton is a writer and a philosopher. Uh, I don't think that he's a Christian, but he is convinced that atheism cannot make sense of the world in which we live. And in his book, The Soul of the World, he argues that there are things that we experience that demand the existence of God. Things like the urge to worship, or a life of prayer, or the sense of God's presence among the faithful, or obedience in the face of temptation, or the love of God. He says none of these things can adequately be explained by science. They come to us, Scruton says, and he put it this way, I quote, with a self-verifying character that silences skepticism. And nothing silences skepticism like love. It's Jean Valjean in Victor Hugo's Les Mis who finds love in the actions of a priest. Valjean is, is caught by the police stealing silver from the home of the priest who had given him food and lodging. The police take Valjean back to the home of the priest to verify that Valjean did in fact steal the silver. The priest sees Valjean, the priest sees the police, and then he rebukes Valjean for not taking the silver candlesticks as well. And at least in the play, the grace shown by the priest causes Valjean to cry out, why did I allow this man to touch my soul and teach me love? He treated me like any other. He gave me his trust. He called me his brother. Can such things be? I feel my shame inside me like a knife. He told me that I have a soul. Such is the power of love. As that 1980s philosopher Huey Lewis once put it, that is the power of love. Tougher than diamonds, rich like cream, stronger and harder than a bad girl's dream. I don't quite get that part, right? But he keeps going, make a bad one good, make a wrong one right. Power of love that keeps you home at night. So all I'm saying is that love is pretty amazing, you know, that uh, Victor Hugo and Huey Lewis, they were onto something. Love is pretty amazing. And I think Scruton is onto something too. It's really hard to explain it without God. Love says, I value you not for what you can do for me, but for who you are. Love says, I'm going to go and I'm going to give myself to you, even though you've got nothing to offer me. We all want to experience that kind of love. I mean, who doesn't want that? Right, line up however million, billion people there are in the world today. Line them all up. Who doesn't want to experience that kind of love? You mean you're going to love me not for what I can do for you? Really? I mean, you're going to love me not, not because I can make you happy. You're just going to love me because you really? Who doesn't want that? We all want to experience this kind of love. The Bible, by the way, goes even further. The Bible says we are useless without love. 
So Paul says that I could preach the best sermons and know the Bible inside and out and have all the right answers when people come and ask me questions. But if I don't have love, Paul says, I'm nothing. Right? And it's not just me, it's you too. Right? You could build a thousand buildings, you could have 10 kids, you could write a hundred books, but the Bible says if you don't have love, you are nothing. But, and this is key, right? So this is key to getting us into our text today. You can't give away what you don't have. You know what I mean? You can't give away love. You can't be that, that loving kind of person if you yourself don't have love. Right? You've got to have the love. You've got to know love in order to give love. If you're not giving love, the Bible says you're nothing. But in order to give the love, you've got to have the love, which is why the title of the sermon is, Does God Really Love Me? Because that's a really important question. Because if God doesn't love you, you've got no love to give, and you are nothing. And that's what I want us to think about today, that question, Does God Really Love Me? We are in the Gospel of John, chapter 16, verses 25 through 33. We are at the very end of what we have been calling the farewell discourse. This is the last sermon given by Jesus to his disciples. Now, in John, chapter 17, we're going to have a prayer from Jesus, and it's a prayer to God the Father, and it's a prayer certainly for the ears of the disciples, which is why we have it in the Bible. But in John chapter 17, if you will, Jesus is looking into the eyes of God the Father. And in John chapter 16, Jesus is looking into our eyes. These are Jesus' last words to his disciples. They're extraordinary. I've got three points. First, the promise of love. Second, the absence of love. The promise of love, the absence of love. And third, the triumph of love. All right? Promise, absence, triumph. Here we go. Number one, the promise of love. Look at verse 25. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. So Jesus says there will come a day, there will come a day, which means at the time Jesus said this, that day had not yet arrived, there will come a day when the disciples will be able to pray directly to the Father. Right. That day will come when they can pray directly to the Father in the name of the Son. Right. A day is coming when sacrifices are no longer necessary to make you holy and acceptable to God. Because one sacrifice will have, have accomplished that task for all time. A day is coming when you will be able to go directly to the Father, he says, in my name. How is that possible? Verse 27. For the Father himself loves you. The Father himself loves you. A day is coming when you can go to the Father directly in my name. How is that possible? That's a big deal. It's a big deal to be able to enter the throne room of God boldly. How is that possible? Because the Father himself loves you. There's a couple of things I want to say about this love. First, this love is intimate. Look again at verse 26. In that day, you will ask in my name. 
And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your, on your behalf. I, I won't need to ask the Father on your behalf. You can ask Him yourself, right? That's the astounding promise of love. You're not going to need to ask the Father on, on my behalf. I'm not going to need to ask the Father on your behalf. You can ask Him yourself. You will have the Father's ear. So this idea of an intimate relationship with the Father is a key theme of Jesus' last sermon, right? John 14 to 16. A key theme is this intimate relationship Jesus is promising with the Father. Jesus wants the disciples to know that one day they're going to live in the Father's house, right? That's how John 14 begins, right? You're going to live in the Father's house. There's a room waiting for you in the Father's house. You guys are going to walk past one another while you go to the kitchen. I shouldn't go there. I shouldn't have said that. I'm just saying there's intimacy. I don't know what it's going to look like. Right? But they're going to see the Lord. An amazing thing. An amazing. It's like the Garden of Eden where they walked and talked with God. Right? It's going to be like that in heaven. Right? But better. I don't even understand, but it's going to be better. And so Jesus is saying, John 14 through 16, there's this intimate relationship that awaits, which is why again and again he keeps saying there's going to come a day when you can go directly to the Father. John 15, 16. Jesus explains why he came. It's so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. That's the first time Jesus has what appears to be an aside about prayer. John 15, 16, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. He says it again in John 16, 23. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. So there it is a second time. The day is coming. Whenever you ask the Father in my name, he's going to give it to you. And again, I keep saying it. We've been in these verses before. This is not about seeing God as a cosmic candy dispenser. That's not the main point of this. The main point of this is a day is coming when you can go directly to God the Father. And so a third time, Jesus makes the same promise. He promises a day when they can go to their Father anytime for anything, right? So... I happen to know that Waffle House and Steak and Shake are open 24-7. They are always ready to receive paying customers. Right. I'm not comparing the father to Waffle House. But what I'm saying is he's always, he's always, he's always ready. You can always go in and, and see him and, and talk to him. And, and I think we, we lose something of the magnificence of prayer when we forget how significant this is to be able to right there in your pew right now, in the car, on your knees, in the bedroom, you go to the Lord and the Lord hears you because of the blood of Christ. And that's an amazing thing. So three times Jesus tells them a day is coming when you can go to the Father. You won't, you won't, you won't, you won't need to have me ask for you. A day is coming. We can ask you. Doesn't it just make you want to say, Aaron, thank you. I'm done. I'm going to go talk to God. You know, if I could talk to him or have you talk to me, I'm going to go talk to him. Right? Jesus is saying that's the relationship that awaits us. Steph Curry is the most valuable player in the National Basketball Association. Uh, he is a leading point guard going to the NBA Finals. In the past few games, he's decided to bring his little daughter up for the uh, post-game press conference. She's in his lap, grabbing at the microphone, interrupting the reporters, making faces at the camera, right? Steph Curry is worth millions and millions of dollars, right? And he is patiently holding his daughter in 
his daughter in his lap. Why? Because he's her dad. He's worth millions, right? It'd be so hard to get a meeting with him. Doesn't matter. He's her dad. She always has direct access. And so the father's ears are always open to the prayers of his children. We always have direct access. Verse 27, for the father himself loves you. That's why there is a relationship with the father that is so intimate. The father will, if you will, put off everything to listen to you. Now, this isn't a hard point to understand, but it is important to grasp. A relationship with God is more than the absence of his wrath. Right? A relationship with God is more than the absence of his wrath. It is the presence of his acceptance. Right? A relationship with God is more than the absence of his wrath, W-R-A-T-H. It is the presence of his acceptance. And so I absolutely believe, and it is vitally important to confess that to be loved by God is to no longer be his enemy, right? The wrath of God has been assuaged. It's been absorbed by the Son on the cross, right? You, you no longer deserve punishment because you've received the righteousness of Christ. Your sins have been atoned for. Your debt has been paid. God's wrath has been poured out on another, okay? So that is absolutely true. We talk about the wrath of God so that we can enjoy the reality of our salvation. What have we been saved from? Right? Yes, we've been saved from our sin. Yes, we've been saved from Satan. Yes, we've been saved from death. But we have been saved fundamentally from the wrath of God, which would be poured out on us for eternity had Jesus not intervened. Absolutely true. Vital to profess. But that's not all. You are now, if you're a Christian, part of his family. You know, God's child. You know, like Steph Curry's little girl, you can crawl up into his lap, fully accepted by God, your father. Okay, so do you remember the parable of the prodigal son? Okay, maybe you're new to church and, you know, when a pastor says, do you remember, they say, there he goes again, assuming I know the Bible. I'm not assuming you know the Bible. If you've never heard it, I'm glad you're here today. The parable of the prodigal son from Luke chapter 15. It is a great parable. It is about a son who demanded his inheritance from his father. You know, Dad, you owe me that money. I want it now. You know, I want to cash in my family inheritance stock options. He gets all the money, right? It's the first century, so he puts it in a bag. Right? And he leaves town. And he goes and he spends that, that money on women and on booze. And so he thinks that he's going to find happiness in sex and in, in parties and living the life and living the dream. And when the women are gone and when the money's all been spent, because the money goes faster than he thought it would go, he finds himself in the mud eating pig slop. And the son, the son reaches the end of himself. He just reaches the end of himself. You know, he just sees the futility of all the decisions that he's made. He, he sees the way he's wronged God. He's, he sees the way he's wronged his dad. He's desperate. And so, so he, he starts running home. And this is what he's going to say. He's going to say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So that's what he's planning to say to his earthly father. 
you know, my earthly father, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against God. I've sinned against you. I don't even deserve to be a hired servant. I mean, you, it is in, within your rights to just bind me and, and beat me and, and cast me out of the house. And, you know, I, just, I don't deserve it, but I'm coming back because I don't have anywhere to go. But before the son can even say a word, the father sees him in the distance and the father runs out to see the son, and he embraces him, and he kisses him. And then the father kills the fattened calf and throws a party. Right? This, this is love. Vast is the ocean. Here's a son begging for the mercy of his father. And here's a father lavishing grace before, before his son even asks. Do, do you see that? Before the son can even ask, before he gets the words out, the father sees the son, boom, the father's off running to lavish grace upon grace on the son. So you see, the father accepts the son, the dirty, slop-eating, sinful, rebellious, you know, scuzzy son. The father embraces him and the father kisses him. The father accepts his son. And if you're a Christian, the Father accepts you. And that's the point. There's going to come a day when you will not need to have me ask the Father on your behalf. There's going to come a day because the Father accepts you on the basis of what I've done that you can go to him and he's going to hear every word you utter and he's going to want to lavish upon you even more grace upon grace upon grace. So love is, is intimate. Second, love is demanding. Look at verse 27. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. So according to Jesus, at this point, Jesus says to be loved by the Father, you must believe in the Son. To be loved by the Father, you must love the Son. That's what Jesus says. Now, maybe you're thinking, hey, Aaron, if the love of the Father demands that I have faith in the Son and that I love the Son, well, isn't that love conditional? That doesn't sound very unconditional to me, Aaron. I always hear that love is unconditional. But that because makes me think that it's conditional. Unless you're going to do some Greek thing where you tell me that because doesn't mean because. So, Aaron, what are you going to do with that? All right, so the question is, is the Father's love conditional? And here's what I'm going to do. Yes and no. Yes and no. So write that down. You're taking notes. Yes and no. Uh, yes, if you mean that the God only loves, God only lavishes out his grace upon grace on those who love and believe his Son. In that sense, there is most certainly a condition placed upon the Father's love. The Father's love is not for everyone. Hear me loud and clear. Right? The, the love of the Father is not for everyone. The love is for those who come to him through Jesus. The love of the Father is for those who come to him through Jesus. That's what Jesus is saying. I take Jesus at his word, right? He loves you because you love me and believe that I've been sent by God and I'm going back to God, my Father. So in that sense, the love is conditional. Sure, yes, yes. But no, no, if you realize that God himself is the one who meets the demand for us to love him. 
Yes, you got to love him. No, because God himself is the one who meets the demand. God himself ran out to us when we were still scuzzy and embraced us and kissed us on the head. God met the demand. God initiated the relationship. God poured out his love for us through Christ on the cross so that we would love and believe in Jesus. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Verse 26, in that day, there's a day coming, you will ask in my name. What is that day? What is the day? I'm still on the same topic, all right? What is that day? In that day, you will ask in my name. Well, that day is the day of the cross, right? It's the day that Jesus suffered the wrath of God, atoned for our sins, made a relationship with God possible. So before we could ever love Jesus, we needed that day to happen, right? We needed the cross to happen. We needed the resurrection to happen in that day. Verse 26, look at verse 28. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. What do you, what do you believe, Christian? You believe that Jesus came into the world and he's now leaving the world and going to the Father. Jesus, they don't, the disciples don't get it. You know, Jesus has talked about the cross before, but it's not sinking in. But what's he saying here? He's, he's promising to leave by way of the cross. He's saying, I'm about to die, right? So verse 26, on that day, you will be able to go to the Father, right? I came from the Father. I've come into the world, and I'm now leaving the world. Jesus had to leave because he had to die, but death will not have the last word. He will be raised from the dead and return to the right hand of the Father. So the cross and the resurrection lead us to love God. And so what I'm saying is, yes, is it conditional? Yes, it's conditional. All those who are loved by the Father, they love the Son. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, right? Uh, it's also in John 14, 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him. It's conditional, yes. But isn't it interesting that that condition statement because you have loved me and believed in me. Isn't it interesting that it's surrounded by two statements that point us to the cross? It's like sandwiched in between the cross. In that day, what day? The day I die, right? Here, who am I? I'm the one who came from the Father. I'm going to the Father. So the because is surrounded by the cross. And so that's why I say it's not conditional in the sense that God has met the demand for us that we might, by his grace, love the Son and believe in the Son. Now, brothers and sisters, we must be clear. The only way to the Father is through the Son, John 14, 6. We live in a world where everyone thinks God loves them. But the truth is that there is a, a unique love a saving love that God has reserved 
only for those who come to Him through Jesus Christ. We were enemies of God and objects of His wrath until Christ took our place. So this is love, God coming after us, God pursuing us when we were still sinners. And only those who believe in this Savior, only those who have come by God's grace to love the Savior know this particular saving love of God. You know, I tell my kids, I love you. I love you differently than I love other kids in your life. You're my son. You're my daughters. I love you different. God put you in this family for a reason. I love you differently. What we have in our text is a different kind of love, a different kind of intimacy reserved for all those who would ever repent and believe the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so if you have never done this, if you have never turned from your sin and trusted in Christ to save you, you know, if you've never said, Lord Jesus, I love you and I want to follow you, I believe that you died on the cross in my place for my sins. I believe that you rose. Jesus, it's hard for me to believe, but I do. I believe you rose from the dead. Wow, I believe that, and I want to follow you, right? If you've never done that, I invite you today. You don't have to wait. I invite you to turn from your sins and believe in Jesus, to love him. You won't regret it. I invite you to do it now and to tell me after this service that you have decided to follow Jesus because you want the Father's love. Now, Christian, maybe you need to hear today, maybe you just need to hear from the Father, I accept you. You don't have to prove yourself to him. The proof is on the cross. Jesus did that for you. You don't have to work to earn his approval. He already approves of you. You are accepted, right? The love of God is not only the absence of God's wrath, but it's the presence of his acceptance. The Father accepts you, and maybe you need to hear that. And some of you need to simply stop seeking acceptance from your spouse or your kids or your pastors or your boss. You need to you need to stop looking for acceptance in all the, you know, is it Willie Nelson looking for love in all the wrong places? You know, isn't that what we do? Stop it. No, don't do that. Now, I know me yelling, stop it, isn't going to make it happen. But I exhort you, go to the Father. Acceptance is only to be found in him through the blood of Christ. Kirsten, you are being baptized today because of the promise of God's love. Don't ever forget that. You are accepted by the Father through the blood of Christ and through nothing else. Okay? Okay. She affirms. Second, the absence of love. All right, look at verse 29. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Now, I'll stop there. Up in verse 25, Jesus promised an hour was coming when he would no longer speak in figures of speech. Right? His, his speech would not be veiled, if you will. A day was coming when he would speak very plainly about the Father. And I take that to mean about the Father's plan 
of redemption. That hour, though, was to come, right? The hour when Jesus spoke like this wouldn't arrive until after his death and resurrection, when his disciples would finally and fully understand him, right? So an hour is coming when I'm going to speak to you plainly. It's going to be after the cross and the resurrection. And I would add on the basis of John 16, and especially the passage about the Holy Spirit, that what Jesus is saying is, I'm going to speak plainly to you, and you're going to hear me plainly because of the Holy Spirit at work in your life. seems like the context is fitting where Jesus is saying, look, a day is coming, an hour is coming. I'm going to speak plainly to you through the Spirit. The Spirit's going to be in you. You're going to understand me. Hallelujah. No more confusion. Praise God. But when the disciples hear Jesus even talk about speaking plainly, they get super excited. They think he's already begun to speak plainly. And so they get ahead of themselves and they claim to get it. Verse 30, now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. You know, you don't need to prove yourself to anyone. You know everything. Now we know it. This is why we believe you came from God. Eureka. You know, we found it. However, Jesus does not appear impressed. Look again at verse 31. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. So it's clear the disciples don't get it, and they won't get it, as I said, until the Holy Spirit comes, and the Holy Spirit won't come until Jesus goes to the cross and is raised from the dead. In any event, Jesus, as I said, is not impressed with their newfound faith, and he gives them a couple reasons why. You know, it's like he's saying, hey, you don't get it. Let me tell you why. I'm going to give you two reasons why, Jesus says. He says, first of all, you have ignored my signs from the beginning. You have ignored my signs from the very beginning. Look again at verse 31. Do you now believe? The word that stands out to me is the now. You're like, really? Really? Now? You know, you can sense the exasperation. Why are you so impressed now? Why has it taken you so long to, with such confidence, finally say together, all my disciples, that I've come from the Father? Why? Why not? Why didn't you believe when I turned the water into wine? Was that not a big deal to you? You know, why not when I cleared out the temple? Why not when I healed the official son or when I healed the invalid? Why not when I fed the 5,000 twice? Why not when I walked on water? Why not when I identified myself as the bread of life? Was that too subtle for you? You know, manna from heaven, bread of life. You know, was I not clear? Why not when I went toe-to-toe to to the Pharisees? Why not when I said, before Abraham was, I am? Was that not clear? Why not when I healed the man born blind so that no one could say he simply recovered? Why not? I'm just curious. Uh, Why not when I raised Lazarus from the dead? Why not when I accepted the worship of Mary? Again, too subtle for you? You know, do you think it's just normal for a rabbi to accept worship from Mary as if I was a king? Why not then? Why not when I went into Jerusalem as a king? Why not when I washed your feet? 
Why not when I took up the lowliest position of society and washed your grubby, fecal-ridden feet? Did you not know that the messianic servant had come? Jesus spent, you see, his entire ministry doing amazing, surprising, messianic things, and only now are they willing to say, hey, maybe you came from God the Father. Yeah, we're going to get on that boat. And they still don't fully understand. And what are we to make of this? I see God's patience in their lives. I don't know if you see it, but I hope you do. Do you see God's patience in their lives? Daily, Jesus revealed himself to them, knowing it would take the Spirit to one day open their eyes to identify Jesus as the Messiah, as God himself. So Jesus is patient. Do you see his patience? Miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. Messianic sign after messianic sign. Jesus is so patient. And so perhaps, taking this to our day, Perhaps you've seen something of the Lord's patience in your own life. How many times did you hear the gospel before repenting and believing? Raise your hand if you heard the gospel clearly explained more than once before you came to a state of repentance and faith. I, I don't know how many times I prayed the sinner's prayer. You know, I heard it again and again without actually, I prayed without actually submitting my life to Jesus. You know, you hand raisers, do you not think that's God's patience in your life? That he would give you the opportunity to hear the gospel again and again and again? You know, I'm going to talk this afternoon about some Central Asians who have never heard the gospel in their entire lives. And it is a, it is a incredible feat to actually be able to present them the gospel Humanly speaking, they may only get one crack at it, and you have gotten crack after crack after crack. Is that not the Lord's patience in your life? Don't you know that this is God's God's patience with you? Not only that, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but how many of you have sinned against the Lord after becoming a Christian? We all raise our hand, right? All of us. And yet, you, you go to the Lord, and it's like he's running to you, embracing you and kissing you. You know, before you can get a word out of your mouth, he's there accepting you. What in the world is going on there? Is that not the Lord's patience? We should be thankful that God is patient with us. And therefore, since God has been so patient with us, we should be patient with others. So think about the non-Christians in your life, a little moment on evangelism. How many of you say, you know what, I shared the gospel with her. Done. Moving on. It's on her head now. Right? Oh, really? You know, now they deserve hell. I know that. But look how patient God has been with you. Why wouldn't you persevere in her life? Just praying and pleading and and strategizing for opportunity after opportunity to provide her evidence of God's grace by showing her love. Don't give up and don't pull back. And if you aren't a Christian, I want to speak to you, to those of you who are here this morning and you're not a believer. You would not even identify yourself as a Christian. Here's what I want to say to you. Don't take God's patience for granted. What are you waiting for before you give your life to Christ? Is it not enough that you have an accurate record of Jesus' life and ministry? Is that not sufficient? 
Is it not enough that we have reliable evidence that the tomb was empty? Would you just say, Aaron, that's not compelling to me. I don't think the tomb was empty. Do, Do you not have reliable evidence that the tomb was empty? Is it not enough to have a legacy of churches throughout history that have imperfectly but consistently testified to the power of God and the reality of his love? Is it not enough to be surrounded by imperfect but faithful Christians who would literally give their right arm for you to become a Christian? Is that not enough? What, what are you looking for? What will it take for you to believe that Jesus Christ is Savior and God? So I would say to you, don't please, don't take his patience for granted. In any event, Jesus was not impressed with their newfound faith because they ignored signs from the beginning. That's the first reason Jesus gives. Here's the second, because they'll abandon him in the end. You didn't, you didn't, you didn't, you didn't, you ignored my signs from the beginning. And not only that, you are going to abandon me in the end. Look again at verse 32. Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come. In other words, we're here. It's it's upon us. When you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone, Yet I'm not alone, for the Father is with me. And that's exactly what happens. For nearly three years, Jesus has been teaching, encouraging, rebuking, serving these disciples. They have been with him through thick and thin. He has been with them through thick and thin. They've gone on mission trips for him, right? They have brought him food. They've asked him questions. They have treated him like a trusted rabbi. They have hugged him like a faithful brother. They have never felt closer to anyone in their entire lives. But now... When he needs them most, they disappear like cockroaches when the light's turned on. You can look at the rest of the Gospel of John. There's no disciples pleading with Pilate to let him go. None of them are running through the crowd trying to get Jesus released. Like, hey, no, 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 let Barabbas, no, 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 let Jesus go, hang Barabbas. No, there's nobody, there's nobody saying that, no. There's no disciples pestering the Roman soldiers. No, don't flog him. Don't, I mean, what would you do if someone took your son and just started beating them? You know, oh. Um, I, I don't know him. No, you stop. Stop. Don't you know what you're doing? Right, so the, these people loved Jesus. Jesus loved them. They were close. They were tight. And when the Roman soldiers are flogging him, they are nowhere to be seen. Why? Behold, Jesus says, the hour is coming. It has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and you will leave me alone. Whatever love is, that's not it. I think one of the scariest movies I ever saw was the movie of the two scuba divers who went scuba diving miles off the coast and then they came to the surface and the boat was gone. That's bad. Like that boat, the disciples left Jesus high and dry. They professed faith in Christ. They said they believed he came from God, but when it really mattered, their profession was meaningless. They loved their own comfort, security, safety more than they loved the Lord. So they abandoned him. Right, so I want to I I take this to 2015, right? Uh, uh, not an exact correspondence, right? These disciples lived in a weird world. They, they, they knew Jesus. They knew a lot about Jesus. Jesus was at work in their lives. They would become the apostles. We're not exactly there, but there's something here for us. There's something here about this abandoning Jesus. It's here for us. How many of us remain silent 
among our family and friends because it's just hard to speak up against opposition. How many of us, like the prodigal son, have run away from the father, pretending, pretending he just doesn't exist, looking for pleasure in everything but God? You know, before I was a Christian, I worked really hard at suppressing the truth of God in my heart. I was an expert suppressor of the truth. You know, I did a good job of it. I've told you before, I had hanging on my mirror in my bathroom my life's ambition. It was the picture of the home in Malibu, right? It had the three-car garage, and on the bottom, it had my life's motto, justification for a higher education. It was my life's ambition to never have to worry about money again. Now, as it turns out, I've gotten a higher education, but two of my degrees are from a Southern Baptist seminary, so they don't carry a lot of financial cachet. Paul was describing all of us, all of us, abandoners of Jesus, when he wrote in Ephesians 2.3, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. That's what the prodigal son was doing, carrying out the passions of his flesh, that's what the disciples were doing, pursuing the passions of their flesh instead of sticking to their man, Jesus. My friends, we cannot pursue the passions of the flesh and love God. If you are pursuing the passions of your flesh, that means there is the absence of God's love in your life. Does that make sense? Right? If the Father himself loves you, it's because you love the Son and believe in the Son. You can't love the Son and abandon him all at the same time. That's what I'm saying. And if that's going on in your life, you, like, you don't know how to reconcile. Like, Aaron, I love Jesus, but I can't let go of that sin. Okay, you need the Delta Force people to come in, right? You need the seals. It's called the church. You need some help. If you, are, if you cannot reconcile in your mind your love for Jesus and your attachment to sin, you are in need of help. So warning, meh, meh, meh. Warning, you need help, right? If that's you, you cannot love God and love the world. Are you attached to something or someone that would cast a shadow of doubt on your love for the Lord? The disciples thought they had it all together. They thought they knew the Lord, but they didn't. They had not yet become convicted of sin. What about you? Is there real love for God in your life, or are you still in love with the world? Now, this takes me to the last verse very quickly. Number three, the triumph of love. Look at verse 33. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. I cannot do justice to this verse. Verse 32 is the bottom of the pit. It's the place where there's no love and no integrity and seemingly no hope, but the people who never should have abandoned Jesus abandoned Jesus. It is the bottom of the pit. And then in verse 33, we have the peak of the mountain, right? This is the place where God's love bursts forth to give us hope. So however, however you answered my last question, I want you to know that there is hope for you in the gospel today. So I want to I wanna tell you um, Dustin's story. Not the story of Dustin, but the story that Dustin gave me. And you can get more details from Dustin later today. Dustin recently went to East Asia. And there he heard the story of a man that we call Jeff, 
who became a Christian about four years ago. Jeff had a promising career in medicine ahead of him, but the more he prayed and the more he read the Bible, uh, the more he believed that he should pursue pastoral ministry. Now, Jeff wisely didn't want to make any hasty decisions, right? And so Jeff decided to get some counsel from the church, get some counsel, and he decided to pursue an internship in East Asia for about a year because, you know, this is a big decision. You know, he, he, um, no one was telling him he can't be a Christian, but it's a pretty big deal to now say I'm going to devote my life full time to making disciples of all nations and I'm going to forsake my career. Big decision. He wanted to counsel the body, so he got an internship where he could devote himself to that work. It would give him time to mature spiritually and also give other people the opportunity to speak into his life and affirm or deny whether or not he should be doing this with his life. Well, the internship ends. And Jeff, with help, with prayer, through the word, counselors, he decides that he wants to devote his life to pastoral ministries in a part of the world that is in desperate need of sound pastors. Now, what part of the world is not in desperate need of sound pastors? But you know what I mean. They are few and far between where Jeff lives. His parents were not upset. They were livid. They accused him of throwing his life away. They said it would bring shame on the family. So here's what they did. They took his money. They confiscated his identification, which would make it virtually impossible for him to travel, at least safely. And they locked him in his room. He's in his mid to late 20s. They locked him in his room. They hired a bodyguard. And they conspired with the police to make sure that he wouldn't leave. Right? Now, this is, this is recently. Right? This is not like first century Nero burning Christians. This is recently. So what would Jeff do? Jeff loves Jesus more than he loves his family. He is convinced that Jesus, he's convinced that Jesus would have him serve the church of the living God. And so somehow Jeff escaped and he fled from home. And today, you know, as, as we're together now, Jeff is in another city being hidden by Christian friends and trying to very quietly serve a local church. He doesn't know what his future holds, but he wants to live a life fueled by God's love. He wants to live his life for Christ. He doesn't want to abandon the Lord. Jeff is a real believer. And today he's asking the question, you know, does God love me? And if the answer is yes, God loves me, Jeff is saying, I will do anything. I will do anything for you. And so verse 33, I take verse 33 to be a word of encouragement for Jeff. And if you're a Christian, a word of encouragement for us. And here's what it says. It says, peace is found only in Christ. Peace is not going to be found in your career. I would tell Jeff, your peace is not going to be found in serving the church. Peace is only found when Christ is everything to you. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. So there's an allusion to John 15. He is the vine. We're the branches. We're to live in him, rest in him. And we can only do this if we're convinced that he's worth living and dying for, if we're convinced that he is Lord. All right, Kirsten, as you come to be baptized, remember that you won't find peace in school. You won't find peace in a career. You won't find peace in a man. And you won't find peace in kids. Peace is only found in Christ. He is the vine. You are the branches. Abide in him. He will abide in you because apart from him, 
you can do nothing. All right? Second, following Christ will mean trouble. It will mean trouble. In the world, you will have tribulation. It doesn't matter your background. If you're Asian, Arabic, or American, you will face opposition for following Jesus. Persecution comes in all forms. It goes with the territory. You can't love Jesus and love the world. And so what's happening to Jeff is normal. Your life without persecution is abnormal, right? Jeff, normal. Your life, no persecution, abnormal. Don't be afraid when the trials come. Kirsten, as you come to be baptized, remember that persecution comes to those who publicly profess their faith in Jesus Christ. Those who hide it, you know, the persecution doesn't really come. It's those who publicly profess their faith. It's why baptism is so beautiful. It's a public, it's like bring it on, you know, not exactly, but you know what I mean? Just publicly out there. I'm a Christian. I side with Jesus. You know, Jeff's on my side. You know, Jesus is on my side. Uh, it's okay. Don't be afraid. Lastly, the cross is the triumph of love. We don't just worship a Savior. We worship a crucified Savior. We don't just worship a God who is love. We worship a God who loves us. And so Jesus ends his farewell sermon, his farewell discourse by saying, I have overcome the world. I'm going to the cross. I'm going to defeat death. I've overcome the world. Jesus overcame the world by dying for our sins. And so moments will come when Jeff wonders, does God really love me? I mean, if God really loved me, wouldn't my parents accept me? If God really loved me, you know, wouldn't I, wouldn't I be safe? And in moments like that, Jeff is going to have one place to point to answer the question, does God love me? He can only point to the cross of Christ where Jesus overcame the world. And I would tell Jeff that Jesus overcame the world for him. And I will tell Kirsten that Jesus overcame the world for you. And I would tell all of us who have placed our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that he has overcome the world for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what an amazing thing it is to know that you love all those who have put their faith and their love in Jesus Christ. We are floored and astounded and amazed by the love you have for your children. Father, I do pray for those who have not placed their faith and love in the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that, I pray that they would be at work in their lives, humble them, make them like the prodigal son who wanted to go home, be the God who goes after them, embraces them, and kisses them. Father, help us to love you more each and every day. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.